This is Isolated Together, a pandemic podcast by Quinnipiac University. I'm David DeRoche. With us today is Bruce Adams. He's president and CEO of the Credit Union League of Connecticut, where he started last August. So in his first year, he's confronted with this massive pandemic. Bruce also has a quite a wonderful career working in government as a public servant. He was Nancy Wyman's general counsel. He was assistant general counsel for Governor Dan Beloy. He was deputy commissioner at the Department of Revenue Services. So a lot of experience working in the public sector. And so we're really happy to have Bruce here. Bruce, just real quickly, tell us how the pandemic has changed the way that credit unions are handling business. What kind of adaptations have you had to make? You know, that's a uh really an excellent question. And what credit unions are doing right now is they're finding those adaptations and being nimble enough to put them into action right away. And um, it's everything from how do you do business if, if you have a retail environment and you have to close your lobby to how do you uh, show people who are using your drive up lane um, that you're keeping it clean and, and give them confidence in your services. And what is, I think, the most interesting about these adaptations, which I'll, I'll touch on in a sec, is that they are going to be the keystones or the springboards for how they adapt in the future post-coronavirus. They're going to find ways to cut their costs or to increase their revenues in different ways to be a better, more successful business. And for credit unions who are not-for-profit financial cooperatives, owned, run, and controlled by their members themselves, that's really key because it helps them do more of what they normally do by design. The more we can trim the fat and at the same time deliver increased experience and services to our members, then the more our communities are enriched and everybody does well. So what are those things that that they're doing? Some of this uh, began with appointment banking where you would call up your credit union and say, I, I need to do a closing, I need to get a new loan, I need to do whatever. And the credit union would make an appointment for you and you could come down and talk. And that way they could manage the flow of bodies into a common space. That's clearly gone by the wayside now as the governor's orders have taken acceptable groups down to five or less. But of course these transactions still need to happen. So for instance, in the digital space, which is really where I think a lot of this is going in financial services. In the digital space, how do you do a a residential real estate closing if you need two attorneys and the parties there and witnesses? And, you know, it's really a a group of people sitting down to sign papers together, handing papers across the table. So what's happening now is we've devised a way with the help of the league and our friends in the banking community Uh, working with the governor to create a system where we can do residential real estate closings online and use things like DocuSign, find ways to deliver those digitally signed documents into our town clerk's offices to record the transaction on the land records so that at least that economy can keep moving a little bit. So that's a good example of how how, uh, our our credit unions and our banks are, are changing. So that was interesting. So I think one of the things you said is something that I'm hearing from a lot of folks, which is the things we're learning now, sort of the forced innovations that we're being required to to figure out or to undertake are things that could last beyond this. 
So in, in some ways, you know, we're sort of being pushed to evolve. Are there specific things you're seeing now that you think will last? Do you think we'll be doing more digital meetings? Do you think it maybe won't be necessary to have these more larger gatherings or even like bank branches that were credit union branches that have multiple services? Do you think those things could be, will be streamlined? I think those things will change a lot. And one only needs to look at, at some of the um, national global banks. Even a couple of years ago, they started doing advertisements about how their branches were going to change and how the, the whole experience of the customer was going to change and the, and the banks were trying to be sort of community partners in their, in their advertising, which, you know, as a credit union guy makes me feel good because they're trying to steal our bit. Credit unions in particular are institutions that come with and build a lot of loyalty in their members. And I think that banks are doing or have been trying to do some of the same stuff for, for some, a few couple of years now. And what I think what's going to come out of this crisis is that not only trust in your financial institution to keep your money safe, uh, that will stay there, but the idea of loyalty to your financial institution is going to be what's on the bubble. And so it's incumbent upon credit unions and banks now to build those relationships, both with their members, customers, um, with their communities, to have and build a role and relationship on those axes. Because with all of this digital transformation, people can, will learn that they can do most of their financial business from the comfort of their own home. So what does the financial institution with a branch have to offer other than actual relationship, actual loyalty, uh, actual opportunity for ed financial education or counseling? And that is where I think we will see the, the financial services industry pivoting to coming out of the crisis. And the ones who have been successful on um, building relationship and giving people good advice, good service, uh, are the ones who will succeed the most. And as a case in point of that, there's a good example with all of this small business lending. So you have, you know, sole proprietorships, two and three and four person companies who don't need a whole lot of money, but the money that they do need is absolutely critical. And they need to have a place where they can go and try to get one of those loans. And they don't have a dedicated CFO or bookkeeper or whatever. They've got the chief cook and bottle washer. And that person deserves to have just as much access to this small business lending money uh, and the advice about how to get it as does a large restaurant chain or any of the other big companies we've seen who have gobbled up a bunch of this money. Those people who successfully get to their credit union and get that advice and get that money and save their business is a pretty good guess they're going to be loyal to, their, to the person who helped them get there. What you're telling me reminds me of a trend I'm seeing in other ways is whereas like there's this reliance on technology that we're experiencing now, which we have, you know, been relying on very much for a while, but now we're very heavily reliant on technology for relationships, right? But then there's also this sort of like hearkening to the past, like people wanting to get into nature and to do things. And, and so there's this convergence of the technology that we have, while also just very fundamental things about what makes a business great, which is building relationships. So it's really interesting to see those two things converge where you don't really necessarily think about, you know, some of those things like those old business practices that maybe businesses did for a very long time and stopped doing because, you know, now we have 
digital access to all these things. And so we're not really worried about relationships, but what you're saying is that maybe relationships will become more important moving forward. And that is, that's a service that the digital realm might not be able to provide in a way that uh, the real world can provide. Uh, that's exactly right. And uh, I, if you look, a great example for that is the, is the fintech industry itself. So you have a bunch of really, really smart people uh, who have built this really, really great technology. And then they've got a bunch of money behind, behind them fueling this technology. And so people can do all of this great stuff in, with fintech, with this financial technology. But the one thing that they can't solve for with money or smarts or server space is how to have an actual human relationship. And so we see the, the, and we see the industry scratching at this through AI and, and other bots and things like that. But maybe those things will develop into artificially intelligent beings that will take over the world. But before that happens, there has to be a merger between the technology and the human. And because if you've got three or four different apps you can use, and it's just as easy to use one or the other, what's sticky about yours? And I think the stickiness is if it's actually, if the front end of it uh, has actual human beings who are on your main street, we've got to actually bridge the local and the distant together. And the credit unions by design are perfect for that because we're right in the communities and we can help people who might not otherwise be used to technology and doing things differently. We can actually help them figure it out. You know, I think of the Apple store when, when that whole thing changed and they took away, you know, the cash registers and they had the staff milling with the customers. That's all about putting a human relationship on the face of a technology transaction because Apple's more of a service company than a hardware company anyway. And so this was a way they could actually put their people in front of their customers. And the same thing needs to happen in financial services, I think. And this event is forcing some, at least, and maybe not all, but it seems like some are at least thinking about that, which is, that's interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned just like keeping like a drive-through clean, like how are they doing that? But are there sort of like creative adaptations that you're seeing? Or do you have any like specific stories of any members doing anything a little bit different or a little bit creative to try to make customers happy or try to ease the situation or do anything, to, you know, to try to lighten the mood? There are so many stories in our industry that are inspiring about how credit unions are positively impacting people's lives right now. And um, that's why we call ourselves financial first responders. Because even when we were uh, signed into law by FDR in 1934, you know, at the end of the recession or beginning, the middle of the depression, excuse me, we were designed to to find those opportunities to help in really challenging circumstances. And so one of the, it's not really an adaptation because it is sort of what we do, but when unemployment started to spike and when the impacts of this, of this disease were, were starting to be felt, credit unions were already out there with their members saying, do you need a, you know, do you need a few bucks now? Do you need a really small loan just to get you over a small gap? And they would just, Many of them are just giving these tiny little loans to help people survive. Or they might say, um, which they're doing tons of, I know you're, you know, you just bought this car. Do you want to skip, you know, skip a payment or three payments or something like that? Um, and we'll just put those three payments on the end of your loan. So then in addition to, and of course, with the mortgage help too, and we joined with the banks and the governor to do larger scale mortgage relief. But I mean, I know of people who work on their, uh, you know, they're all, many of them are working from home. 
Um, the CEO, you know, put, uh, gave them all, you know, digital phones so they can basically be in their office at home and they are calling people and helping them figure out how to, how to make their loan payments. Um, if they can make them, um, because of course it's better to pay if you can right now, taking a holiday is not, doesn't work, you know, to your financial benefit. So, uh, they're proactively reaching out to their members and saying, and, and having those conversations. So that's really, really important. And I think that we are going to see more of that uh, distributed workforce too in the future, people um, using up less office space. Which does make a lot of sense, given the fact that this has put into light the, that reality that a lot of the work that people do doesn't necessarily have to be in an office environment. Now, of course, an office environment, you know, leads to other types of, you know, sort of fringe benefits like camaraderie and, you know, water cooler talk and all those kinds of things. But, you know, I guess there are probably alternative ways to do that as well that we might figure out. That was interesting about the proactive reaching out that you guys have been doing or that your members have been doing. Do you have any like data on that? Like how many people have taken advantage of that, have said like, yes, I'll, I'll take you up on that and you defer my loan for a couple of months? Yeah, we can get some data. Um, okay. Right now, they're, you know, our guys are just, frankly, doing so much of the work that they're not also capturing it or they don't have a lot of free resources to do a data dump. Sure. But if, if you check out ctcreditunions.org slash 100 years, just the number 100, there's a list of examples of the kinds of things that we're doing. But, you know, apropos of your question, when people call their credit union and they say that they need help and they ask for let's say a, a low balance fee or an insufficient funds fee to be reversed. The credit unions are just doing that. And they're doing it because they understand that that's their sort of moral obligation and, and frankly their structural obligation as a credit union. But that's why it's so important that they also help people who can afford to pay to make sure they pay. Because it's a cooperative, right? Just like um, you know the old like food co-ops where you'd have to go give five or 10 hours a month of work, and then you've got discounted food, that's the, the trade-off. So credit unions, different from banks, can't go raise outside money to lend. They lend from the deposits of their members. So that's the key distinction. And that's why uh, we really uh, need to operate flexibly so that we can help the people that need it and help the people that don't continue to just have their own financial stability. So maybe you could uh, provide a little bit more context because uh, even myself, you know, I, very, I know very little about credit unions, probably, you know, the bare minimum about what they actually are. You mentioned credit unions are considered financial first responders. How are credit, and this is, you know, this is a chance, I guess, to, to advertise credit unions, but uh, I'm curious. I think maybe uh, folks who, who don't really understand fully what a credit union is either might be curious as well. How are you different from banks in that sense? Like, how are you able to be a first responder in a way that banks are not in situations like this? Well, first of all, let me say banks and credit unions and gigantic investment banks and fintechs all play an important role in our financial services, uh, sort of the quilt, patchwork quilt of our financial services markets. And it's really, really important to have, you know, the tiny little bank, the large credit union, the, the large bank, small credit union uh, distributed across metropolitan centers and rural areas. And even more than that, we have regulators, government regulators on the state side and the federal side. And it's the way I like to think of it, perhaps better than a patchwork quilt, 
is any airplane has two or three or four redundancies built into all of its major functions because, you know, you don't want something bad to happen in the air and then fall out of the sky. And so our financial system is sort of set up that way too, that there's, there's something for everyone that you can get what you need and you're not beholden to one monolithic financial institution because that will lead to people getting cut out of access to, to credit and access to, to financial services. So credit unions, however, because it is run by its members and, and it's uh, controlled by its members, it doesn't have to guess what it wants to provide its members. Its members are telling them, we want this digital service, but we don't want that digital service, or please don't take away paper checks. We like paper checks. So that, that helps to make the business leaner and more efficient. But most importantly, because it's not for profit, what that means is that everything it makes above and beyond its costs gets returned to the members as value. So you're, you can either get greater interest rate on your deposit than you might otherwise get, or a lower interest rate on your loan. Because we, don't, we tend not to have to cover a bunch of other expense with that interest rate. And so that's really the, the key differentiator. And some people have put all of their financial business into a credit union and they've been members for generations and it's really important to them. And there's a, a community value because uh, credit unions invest in their local communities and that's really important. But some people come just because they know they can get a cheaper, uh, cheaper rate on their car loan than they might otherwise get. And so it takes all kinds. But, and I'll, I'll answer too on your financial first responder part. You know, we've got credit unions in Connecticut that are dedicated to employer groups as they're across the country. And so we've got ones that serve primarily firefighters or police or teachers or hospitals and healthcare workers and, and others too, and some of our utility uh, providers. But imagine if your entire customer base were working doctors and your branch was in a hospital. I mean, talk about being pretty darn close to the front lines when, you know, somebody who's treating COVID-19 patients all day needs to uh, make sure that they uh, get their bills paid, that they can come down and just be helped right then and there in a time of great exhaustion and in time of great, you know, strain to be able to have that financial service right there at your fingertips uh, is really, really comforting. And it is essentially a financial first response. Now, I don't wanna co-opt the, the message that you know, we too are just as important as, as uh, uh, the ambulance drivers and, and the ER doctors. But I do wanna say that as essential employees, uh, especially those of us who are working with, with the police and the firefighters and the hospital workers, um, we take it as a very serious obligation to help those people uh, have as smooth a financial life while they're saving actual human lives. Let me just ask you a question I probably should ask you in the beginning. How are you? How are things? How is anybody these days? Right. We're, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's this really strange time. And I paused there because I didn't want to say unprecedented again. I have uh, developed a, a pure hatred for that word. Um, <laughs> yeah. And partially because it's so apt and partially because I wish we were back to normal times. Mm. But I've been through a number of these sort of larger crises before. And um, I think that there are, 
as we talked about in the beginning part, there are opportunities for us to learn from it about how to prepare for the next one and about how to, uh, how to manage uh, this one. And um, I run, you know, I have my own staff, a small staff, and then all of my members have their staffs. And uh, we've uh, started at the Credit Union League, we've started really, geez, for a month or so now, doing all crisis response, like everything we do. And as a membership organization, there are some credit unions out there that in Connecticut that have chosen not to pay their membership dues to us, but we just threw open our doors and said, everybody come on in, we're all in this together and have tried to uh, help. So what we do is to uh, help them with complying with the law. We help them answer questions, for instance, about the drive-throughs or whatever. And um, all of this is a long-winded way of saying that I am really busy. And so mentally I'm fine because I, I have a job that is taking up, you know, all of my waking hours. And, uh, and it's, an, it's an honor to do it and it's a labor of love. And so I'm, uh, at this point, I am now very tired, but I'm at the same time, you know, energized and hopeful for the future. Were your uh, members and were, were your staff prepared for something like this? I mean, obviously a lot of people were taken off guard, but did you guys, do you feel like you were adequately prepared to pivot and figure stuff out? Or how did you handle all these changes as they started happening? We were adequately prepared in that our office had recently gone through, our physical office had recently gone through a downsizing and we had pushed uh, more remote access to all of our employees. Certainly for me, my job involves in a normal time, during the legislative session, I would be up in Hartford most of the time, but our office is in Meriden. And then if there's a lot of travel uh, that I do, which I can't do now, so I was already basically a remote employee. And um, our government relations person is a remote employee for the most part too, because all the business is up in Hartford. And uh, our compliance people go out in many cases to do audits of our members who ask for an audit to look at a certain piece of you know, their operation. And so we realized that virtually all of us don't need the office space. So when this happened, we were able to, to shut down the office. We have one person who's designated to go and check the mail uh, and make sure that, you know, the place hasn't been looted. <laughs> but uh, I'm kidding, of course. So that was a really easy adaptation. Uh, the harder adaptation is that we have a staff meeting every day so far, seven days a week, except for the last two weekends. And um, we meet in the morning. We, after the sort of breakfast and, you know, time to catch up on what the news of the day likely is. Then we predict, it's almost like a newsroom, which I I suspect, because I've never worked in a newsroom, but I've learned a little bit now. And so you've got to have your huddle and figure out where you think you're going to go and plan a production schedule for the day. You know, what are our action items? What are our research items? How do we want to triage these various things? Who's on point for tasks, you know, A, B, C, D, E. Um, We try to have a draft of our daily update that we send out to our members and a lot of other people. We try to have a draft for that in the late afternoon and usually get get the version out, the the final version out sometime, you know, after after, let's say, seven or eight. And, you know, as I say, it's been every day for a, a long time. And that is a 180 degree shift from how we have operated before. Uh, but we've, we had to come together and uh, figure out new ways and 
we've done that, I think, exceedingly well because we adopted a, a quality improvement methodology and um, we have just tried to get better with every single day. And when we're wrong or if we've published something that isn't quite perfect, we, we just own it, fix it, and you know, put it out again. Or if we didn't get a piece of information fast enough, then the next piece of information we need to get faster. And I think our whole staff has matured, including myself, matured in a way that will pay dividends to us for years to come. So obviously, this is a once in a century, not even a lifetime, really, uh, sort of situation. But you were with Governor Malloy's office when the Sandy Hook massacre occurred. You were there when um, the hurricanes came through Connecticut years ago and, and caused a lot of havoc. You know, a lot of people talk about this being different, unprecedented, you use that word, or you try not to use that word. Just from your experience in public service, how do you think it's different in terms of how we think about responding to crises? Is it something that has really just changed how we're going to have to just even plan about crises generally? Because it's such as usually a crisis happens and it's over and then you deal with it. This is just like this ongoing day after day learning new things. And, you know, what we thought last week was true is not true anymore. Just the nature of this crisis being so ongoing and perpetual do you think that's going to have some sort of lasting impact on how organizations or businesses plan for crises? There's a lot of ways to answer your question. I think that the, the immediate way to uh, start considering the issues is to think about private business in one bucket, financial institutions in a second bucket, and government in a third bucket. For financial institutions, especially after the Great Recession, they have really built up in relationship with their regulators a lot of business interruption and disruption planning. So they have contingency plans. Most of them are pretty darn good given the size and scope of the, of the organization so that they are prepared for the most part not to need a bailout, for instance. Now, in terms of global pandemics, in terms of, of you know, massive disruption like this, pretty hard to prepare for, for that um, and for surviving and let alone thriving in that time. Um, government, however, I think needs to uh, take a big lesson from this and understand that for one thing, rainy day funds are there for a reason um, and they're really important. And when we, when we in government, and I'm not just speaking for Connecticut, government across the states and in our nation need to understand that the government is there should be there in our time of need. And so there have to be reserves and there has to be generosity of spirit and uh, the willingness to give it out to whoever needs it. And I think that's what you're seeing in this crisis versus the Great Recession is that all of this aid is being trying to be pushed to the individual to make sure that they can stay in their house, to make sure they can buy food, to make sure that they can provide for their children's education. And those things are what actually is going to help money move through the system. And that's what keeps our economy going and hopefully preserves jobs. So government really needs to be prepared um, for anything. With respect to private business, it's a little more challenging because you've got the small restaurant uh, has a different set of issues than the small law firm, than the medium-sized manufacturer. You know, if you're in the vaccine business right now, or if, you're in, if, you, if you own a liquor store right now, 
you know, you're, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> but if you own a nail salon or a hair salon, you're not doing anything. If you're a massage therapist, you're not touching somebody. So how does, how do you plan for stuff like this is impossible to do. I think across the spectrum of business, what I think is really important though, is being adaptable and nimble and businesses need to look at those, what I would call points of failure or those inflection points where if something that we can't foresee happens, what are those things that we just can't change? And those are the items that we can start planning around for the long-term response after COVID. Where am I so inflexible that I can't you know, pick up and move uh, out of the way of a disaster? What that leads to is a change in the way businesses engage in planning on the one hand, and we're still waiting to sort of see, I think, what those lessons will be about how we plan for the future. And then the other thing that I think businesses need to figure out is just how do we do this thing called risk management, enterprise risk management. And there's ways for every business to be able to do it. I think it needs to be written down. It needs to be reviewed and cared about, those reports. And so it doesn't matter if it's when is my lease expiring to how old is the roof on top of my small factory to what are the terms that I'm offering this loan product under and are those still good for current market conditions? It's everything. Is my business on a floodplain and can I handle a flood? All of those questions need to be answered. uh, And over time, you build that wisdom about how to think about risk. There's not going to be any one product that's going, you know, nobody's going to make an, well, that's not true. Somebody will make an app for risk management, but it ain't going to be good, at least not for a long time. And this is where businesses and their directors need to put their collective wisdom together and start learning about risk, identifying it, monitoring it, and responding to it. I feel like that topic itself could be a podcast episode alone, um, just because I think there's so much to pull apart in that. But just coming back to the, to the human level, how has your staff and your members, their staff, how have they fared? Have there been any scares? Do they feel safe? Like, do they feel okay going to work and being on the front lines? Our staff at the league, uh, as I say, they're, they're remote and they're staying at home. And even though our staff is all physically healthy and we're all working well and putting out a lot of work product, this pandemic has caused certainly me, I won't speak for the rest of my staff, but I would bet it's true for them, a great amount of of mental and emotional stress. And I've had to take take days, and I know others in my staff have had to take time or days, and certainly my colleagues and friends around the state have all had to take days that, you know, they wake up in the morning and they're in a bad place. And you just got to tap out and say, you know, I can't do it today. I need to Go, you know, watch Tiger King all day or something. Um, <laughs> right. Something, anything, just to, just to unplug for right. a minute. Or, or go running or whatever it is. But, something, you know, right. Something detach. That's detach, right. And detaching is really important when we're in a high-pressure situation. Now, where that is ever more important is our credit unions who are interfacing with the public every day, touching cash every day, which is dirty, yeah. and dealing with, right, Dealing with people who are who are out of a job, who have you know a, a house loan, a car loan, maybe they have medical debt, 
and they themselves are so um, stressed out. Uh, and and wow. our people literally on the front line with those people, whether it's on the phone or online, what have you. Um, and that takes a toll far more than the toll on my staff. Oh, I can only imagine. Toll on them. Right. So what, one of the things we did at the league was we put together a relationship with um, BetterHelp is an app where you can get one-on-one -on -one counseling. And we're doing some stuff with a number of other organizations to start to identify and address the emotional needs of, uh, of the, the actual workers at credit unions. So we've also started working with Mental Health Connecticut to help put together web-based resources to provide to our workers, whether they're in the office uh, working on the financial front lines or they're at home wondering if they're ever going to get called back into work. But we realize that it's our obligation to help the people who work, are working in financial services and dealing with all these stressors every day to get them the tools uh, to use for their own personal, physical, and emotional health. And if we don't do that, then the system can start to break down. Our people in our communities will suffer. Thinking about customers coming, also dealing with the same kind of stress that your, some of your members, uh, employees are dealing with and dealing with financial stress on top of it. Had there been any like incidents where it got ugly? Have there been any incidents like that or have we been lucky enough to avoid those? Uh, largely, we've been lucky. Right in the beginning, there was a lot of talk and a lot of fear that there would be runs on large cash withdrawals. Mm. And there wasn't. It didn't happen. But, uh, and it certainly didn't happen the way, you know, like, the bank runs of the, of the Great Depression. But people came asking questions. Just like hoarding toilet paper, people thought it would be reasonable to hoard cash. But luckily, they didn't actually go through with that. Not because it would hurt the, the, the credit union that much or the bank, but because it's unnecessary. And it creates a public safety risk. If, you, if everybody's shoving cash under their mattress, the thieves know that. So what happened on the front lines for us in, in the credit union space was that we uh, helped a lot of people ask those questions and answer them and understand that they can do A, B, and C online. And they, if you call us up, we'll help you do that. And uh, we worked with the state trying to plan for some, you know, some other sort of unemployment assistance or the federal assistance payments trying to help the flow of money work well. And we're still trying to figure out how we can help people if they are one of the people that get a paper check from the government, like Social Security or what have you. How do you actually get that person who likely doesn't really have an account or probably a smartphone? How do you get that person's money into an account? And these are the kind of things we wrestle with. And I think it's, um, it's really inspiring work that somebody is out there thinking of these needs and trying to solve these problems. So, you know, when I get a paper check, I have a smartphone, I take a picture of it and I deposit it. But to your point, if somebody doesn't have a smartphone or they don't have the app, what are their options? Could they, could they call you guys and say, this is the check number, this is the amount with that, or not you necessarily, but your members, is that something that could happen? We're working on it. <laughs> um, I mean, think of, and the best population for that as you're thinking about it is, what about the elderly population who's in a nursing home right now? Right who has a medical condition or is otherwise sort of, you know, physically vulnerable, limited mobility, most of whom 
don't do uh, online banking. Right. And so the mail comes to the nursing home and let's say there's a hundred checks on the first of every month. I mean, we've got uh, groups of people trying to figure out how to do that. And some of our folks uh, are suggesting that we might actually bring the credit union to the nursing home. Wow. Set up a little station and figure out how to process those paper checks on site. I don't want to promise that. I don't know. Right. Things, you know, but those are the kinds of conversations we're having. If, if they can't come to us, can we come to them? And we're, right. and we're trying to work that question through. You know, something that has come up, not very frequently, but, you know, I think about it when I'm out and, you know, seeing people in masks, everybody looks like bank robbers. And so I think... <laughs> You're totally right. You know, and so I'm thinking, is this an opportunity for bank robbers to go into a, you know, because they're covered and nobody's going to question them. Is that something you guys worry about? Is that something you're like, what's going on with that? We don't worry about it, but we talk about it. No. So one of the things that we did very early on was to go to one of the largest insurance carriers for the credit unions um, and ask them that specific question. If people are coming into lobbies wearing masks and then turns out that they rob the credit union, is our insurance coverage implicated? And the simple answer is no, it's not. Now, Again, the devil's in the details. We'll see what happens when somebody does that. However, insurance is a product that just gives you money in the case of, you know, in this case, a violent act. We would like violent acts not to (laughs) occur at all. Again, we haven't seen anything like this, but we're talking about ways to require people to verify who they are before they enter the the lobby, uh, when the restrictions are lifted for them to let's say if they can put a fingerprint on a scanner or to show their face and then put the mask on. Um, but those are all questions that we're trying to model out now and game out to see uh, how well they would work. So you also talked about, you know, dealing with cash and cash being dirty and, and these are things that people still use. Has this accelerated the conversation over the need for to just eliminate cash and just go to a digital currency? And is that something you're hearing from either policymakers or your peers in your position in other states? I'm hearing that the uh, possibility of allowing retail operations to go cashless is uh, a concept that legislators are talking about a little bit more. There are a whole host of policy implications involved with allowing someone to go cashless, especially if you are, if you're like a bodega, you know, you're a small market or something where you're providing, you know, a convenience store, you're providing people with uh, medicine and bananas and um, all the daily things that they might want. If you stop accepting cash, you are cutting people's access to those things off. So there's a policy balance there. But I know that that conversation is is growing. With respect to digital currency, because it is, we really don't have a digital currency that is not, at the end of the day, anonymous. I don't see, and I haven't heard of governments embracing it in such a way as to have it replace their their physical or fiat currency. And part of that is, A, because it's anonymous, and B, because government likes to make money too. And so if you right. can't the the you know the currency um then it it gets cut out of the game right right i just you know see you know the bitcoin fans like going you know this is the time you know look at the the economy's collapsing now's the time to invest in bitcoin 
if you follow Bitcoin, you know that it's a super volatile thing, but it is interesting to see the interplay of digital currency in this current environment. If I could add to that though. Yeah, please. One of the things I think you, you might see, um, and I don't know if it'll be right away, but you might see a digital currency for other things. So, so tokens for um, the various credits we have out in our, in our life. You know, I had a, uh, I had a number of plane uh, plane tickets canceled in relation, you know, relation to this uh, pandemic. Right. So I've got the credit. Yeah. So can I make a little secondary market for that uh, with a digital token and trade oh, it to somebody? Who, you know, and then I'll, I can get my value back and convert it to money. I don't yeah. know. But yeah. I think that there's a lot of ways where there's there's value. I mean, or people who have um, Starbucks money. Start the Starbucks gift card has piles upon piles upon piles of money in that system and it's money that's not in a bank now right so in some ways starbucks is a bank i mean it's a lot of money that they have yeah and so what if i could take my starbucks value out or transfer it to another starbucks card holder then maybe i can pay for somebody bought me drinks last night at the bar and i can pay them in coffee value that's so interesting so there'd be ways like i guess it seems like a service like PayPal or Venmo would be perfect for that to serve as an intermediary. So PayPal and Venmo, if you're listening, take this idea, but give Bruce credit, Bruce Adams credit for this idea. It makes a lot of sense though, because to your point, if that's money that's sort of locked into a certain purpose, why not free it up or you know, have right. that opportunity to create a market to allow it to free up. That's super interesting. Right. And you know what, if you get $50 in Starbucks and you need to buy a $50 prescription, Maybe you want to figure out a way to move it into your credit union so you can actually pay for your medication. Right. No, that's super interesting. This is all great stuff, Bruce. Uh, we've been chatting for a while, so you probably got work to do, but is there anything else you wanted to, to talk about? Or No, the only thing I'll add uh, that I think is um, uh, important in talking about adaptation is online education. And what we are looking at is executive education in the online space so that we can help our uh, credit union executives get the actual education they need in order to rise up uh, in their own institutions. And luckily we had started doing that before this crisis set in, but we're uh, partnering with Post University to do some online education that will help our credit union executives to gain those skills, to mature their businesses and advance their own careers. And we think that uh, the online education space, especially for executive education, is going to be a really important one uh, in the years ahead. It'll mm. keep people in their workspace working and producing, and it will help them advance uh, in their own careers. And I think businesses across the U.S. will, will mature because of it. I feel like that's something that any forward-thinking business should be considering, is how to educate your peers online, how to use the online space to provide professional development opportunities for either your leaders or your entire staff, or just for the general public. And you know, yeah. to serve it either something free or something people pay for, it just makes a whole lot of sense. Right, everybody's talking about it from, from the school side of things. They're not really talking about executive education or workforce education. Uh, in our case, we're even financial education for our high schoolers, we have a program called uh, reality fairs and, and typically we've gone into high schools and helped kids learn how to make better financial choices and we've reached something like 25 or 30,000 high schoolers since we started but in this crisis we adapted it to we can provide it virtually 
we're rolling it out in early May um, at a high school to run, run their, their high school classes through this financial education called a reality fair. And if it works, we're going to try to um, push it out um, statewide. That's super cool. Let me know how that goes. Uh, yeah, I'd love to do. follow up with that. That's really cool. And just to fact check myself, uh, I said earlier that I said PayPal or Venmo, but I believe PayPal is Venmo. So let me just clarify that for anybody. Bruce Adams, anything else you wanted to mention? No, thank you so much. This has been this has been a blast, and I, I hope uh, helpful to, to everybody yeah. out. I hope so too. I think I think you had a lot of insight. Um, uh, so I appreciate your time. We were speaking with Bruce Adams. He's president and CEO of the Credit Union League of Connecticut. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks. I'll hopefully talk to you again soon. This is Isolated Together, a podcast of the Quinnipiac University Podcast Studio. I'm David DeRoche. I'm Director of Community Programming at the University. Reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter at QUPodcasts, or you can shoot us an email at QUPodcasts at QU.edu. Tell us uh, some stories. Do you have a story to share about coronavirus, about how you've been dealing with the pandemic, concerns you have, uh, success stories, funny stories? You know, we want to tell a variety of stories. We don't want to just focus on the negative. We want to talk about some creative solutions people are coming up with to deal with uh, the pandemic. So if you have any ideas for us, please reach out to us. We are isolated together, but we can get through this together. Thanks for listening.